Janet Forrest. Welcome to The Shelves of Yore. week, Reference Library Associate Jim Borzileri and I return to the 1841 catalog to see what other curious titles could be found on the shelves of the Athenaeum in the mid-19th century. And this time, we focus on health and science. Sort of. Well, not really. You'll see. Just to back up a little, after Jim first mentioned these catalogs to me, he sent an abbreviated list of materials for me to browse. Something that caught my eye right away were three volumes by Dr. Johann Gaspar Spurzheim. Phrenology or the Doctrine of the Mental Phenomena, Outlines of Phrenology, and Phrenology in Connection with the Study of Physiognomy. I had never heard of the science of phrenology before, and if you haven't either, I'm not surprised. You'll find out why in our conversation. I was also intrigued by the book Physiology of Digestion and Dietetics by Andrew Combe, who, as it happens, also wrote about phrenology. Jim and I talk about who these two men were, how their work would have been accepted by readers at the time, and how medical literature in the mid-1800s compares with what is available today. But first, I'm sure you're still wondering, what the heck is phrenology? First of all, Jim, tell us what phrenology is. Yeah, and you've probably seen uh, a little porcelain bust, maybe a picture, and it's usually with a shaved head, and they've sort of got mapped over it different character traits. So for example, uh, it may have areas that are colored in this as this part of the head or this part of the brain is where you talk about self-perfecting or reflectiveness. These are aspiring areas. This is where the acquisitiveness region is. So in other words, they sort of map the brain out, not so much into functional categories like vision or speech or sight uh, or touch, but rather it's like character traits. Are you aggressive? Are you kind? Are you spiritual? Are you pessimistic? And this sort of sprang out of the idea that these various traits were actually localized in a specific part of the brain. And not only that, but that they would sort of manifest themselves in the shape of the skull. And if you were very careful in measuring the shape of the skull and looking for, sometimes it's, it's popularly called bumps, but it's not necessarily that. It's just sort of what parts are prominent and what parts are not prominent. You can get a sense of the individual's actual personality. And I think now is a good moment to say this has been debunked. <laughs> it's not something that's uh, used, I believe, in medical circles at this point. Is that true? I think it's true. And actually, it's been debunked on and off, you know, really back into the 19th century itself, because the problem was people said, well, this is a really great concept. These are really nice diagrams. But where is the factual evidence? When you think back to that time, what might have been their reasoning around why this would work or why this would be true? Well, we, you know, it's it's easy to look back on it right now and, and wonder what they were thinking. But, you know, we are going back two centuries. And 
There's so much more we know and understand, not only about how the mind works, but also just how the body works, that they were just beginning to grasp at that time. So obviously they had the microscope, they had the beginnings of some surgical interventions, but they still did not have a really clear idea of how everything fit together. For example, you know, just DNA and how we reproduced, that would be almost a century away from them. So they're making guesses and they're making suppositions based on uh, what they are seeing, you know, similar to the way we do today. The, the problem is they weren't working with the tools that we have. They weren't necessarily in a position to start testing some of these theories out. So science sometimes works kind of slowly and sometimes it takes a while for people to say, all right, well, the evidence is here for this concept, but not necessarily for that concept. And I think the problem was these ideas became so elaborate and so sophisticated that people maybe psychologically kind of bought into it. I mean, if you spent your life studying something like phrenology to suddenly turn around and go, yeah, well, I guess it's not there. Let's forget about it and move on. That's very, very difficult to do psychologically. And we still sometimes see that today where people will hold on to an idea long after the evidence for it has kind of, you know, been proven not to exist. There were four volumes by a Johann Gaspar Spurzheim uh -huh. who wrote, it looks like phrenology really was his jam. It was kind of what he wrote about. So talk a little bit about who uh, Spurzheim was and what was going on there. Yeah, and this is sort of interesting because at the time he was, you know, he was a respected individual. He was born in Germany about 1776. He studied at the University of Vienna. And, and so he was actually a practicing physician. He began to sort of put together his system that included phrenology, but he also was basing it on some medical science that is actually sort of held on. So it's not a case where you can say, you know, I can take his work or his thinking and split it right down the middle. It's more like everything is kind of mushed together and we have to be able to just almost tease out on an individual item. Okay, does this support the theory? Does this not support the theory? But at the time he was a well-respected physician, you know, so, and actually uh, he, I think, passed away in 1832 while he was making a speaking tour in the United States, you know, which gives you a sense of just how prominent he was. As you're saying this, he sounds very well-intentioned. Mm -hmm. And then you get into kind of scary science like eugenics, where it's clearly race-based, clearly there's an alternate agenda. It's not necessarily, science isn't necessarily a priority. Mm -hmm. Where, like on that spectrum of pure science to alternative agenda, where on that spectrum do you think phrenology would have fallen? At the time, I think it was... Well, it was always, you know, it's almost of a piece. I would say it, it probably falls on the unintentionally malevolent level, because if you if you do this, you're making moral judgments about somebody basically because of the shape of their head. And this sort of falls into a lot of other aspects of race science at the time, which said that the larger the head, the bigger the brain, the bigger the brain, the smarter you are, which obviously would sort of imply, well, most men have larger skulls than women, therefore men are smarter than women. And that became, you know, some of the evidence that they would use. 
you know, and then they would start to say, well, the brain from this person who is of African origin is smaller because their head is smaller. Whether or not it is, it's just sort of the way they kind of perhaps unintentionally brought in some bias to it. So it's one of those things that might have been well-intentioned because they said, we can use this to identify who are the people of moral character, who are, you know, the people of great intelligence, who are going to be good citizens. Unfortunately, it also, to your point, played into some very, very bad things that came to fruition in the 20th century. You know, as we talked about in the last episode, the Athenaeum at this time was a private club mm-hmm. and it catered to a more elite affluent membership. And it was, you know, it wasn't like any, you know, Joe Schmo was walking in there. How do you think this type of research or this type of item would have been received by the people going in there? Probably favorably for a couple of reasons. One, the people that were proposing it might have been a little controversial, but they were all, you know, they were physicians. They weren't, you know, some guy who just was living in their mother's basement and finding things out on the internet. These were people who were articulating a fairly advanced and very sophisticated theory. And it absolutely played into some of the prejudices that were clearly around at the time. So to us, it jumps out to the people at the time. It was probably of a part, you know, they just, they could not see the forest for the trees in a lot of ways. And let's jump over to Andrew Combe, mm-hmm. who it, he kind of dappled in phrenology, but it sounds like he also, the title we had in the catalog is physiology of digestion and diet dietetics. Yeah. He, you know, again, given the nature of the time, he was like a lot of people interested in a lot of different things. He was looking at diet. He was looking at mental health. And again, he was an accredited physician. He, I think he went to the University of Edinburgh. Um, He's known today for phenology because that became, you know, his thing. But he had worked on several other topics. Perhaps one of his best books, you know, dealt with the care of infants, which was a completely different sort of, you know, thing to to be thinking about. And I think, you know, his best book uh, was something, it was his last one, which was called The Physiological and Moral Management of Infancy, which really was, you know, an attempt to sort of empirically document what are the best approaches to childcare. Yeah, that must have been an interesting read if we could get our hands on it. <laughs> yeah, I, it might still be out there. It's probably out on Google Books, but yeah. you know, it's you know. But again, he you know he covered a lot of bases. Uh, he was actually, um, but at the same time, he you know he was very very enthusiastic on his support of phrenology. He just saw it of a piece with everything else he was studying. It was a little controversial at the time, just because the evidence wasn't there. Of course, we know why the evidence wasn't there. But, you know, I think at the time, you know, it was it was considered a somewhat legitimate, you know, form of pursuit until it was finally disproven. Right now, a lot of people can get medical information in many different ways. So you just mentioned Google Books, or mm-hmm. you could look into an actual medical journal. If you go to the reference department, you could find out about medical journals. There's a lot of pop literature about either memoirs or personal experience or doctors are just individually writing books. So there's any number of ways of reading about medicine from the very academic to something that's very accessible to a um, non-science trained person. Uh So how do you think these books would have been written? What would the the text been like? Most of these would have been somewhat popularized and undoubtedly they would have been the basis for a speaking tour. So it was not uncommon for someone to write a book and then go on a speaking tour, you know, to sort of 
further uh, advance their idea. And when you open a newspaper at the time, and this was true even for like the, Nas the Nantucket Enquirer and then later the Mirror, you know, if there had been a presentation made at the Athenaeum, they would reprint it in full. So you would have, you know, one or two pages of the paper just filled with this lecture. And that would be one of the ways it would be communicated out. And then people would read that and say, oh, I must go read the book. And then they would take the book out of the Athenaeum and then the information would spread that way. Well, and things really haven't changed because when you think of people that do TED Talks, lots of times they do a TED Talk and then they launch their book. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And of, and of course, there was the issue of book piracy at the time, you know, which was a big issue because international copyrights did not exist the way they do today. And for example, Dickens made a tour of America, not because he necessarily wanted to come to America, but because he had to make up for the fact that he was being ripped off with all these counterfeit books. So it's, you know, it's so similar to like why rock musicians a few decades ago would have to go on tour because everybody was downloading their CDs and, you know, not paying for them. You work in reference. So mm -hmm. when you look at this catalog and the items in it that are related to health and science and medical information, how would you compare it to what is now available in either the Athenaeum's reference section or your average library reference section in terms of medical and health and science? I'd say a lot of it is, when you look back on it, these are the early days. And I think with phrenology, you see a perfect example of something that's a concept. It's a theory. It's been elaborated on. I mean, as we mentioned, you have the bus with all the little localized areas, but there isn't that much hard data in, in our sense of the word out there. They're not doing, you know, they're not able to formulate a study to say, will this work? Does this not work? Can we use this predictably? That would take time. And I think that's the major difference. Assuming it's a reputable tome, and this would include the internet as well, if it's a reputable site, if it's there, the odds are it's at least gone through some form of peer review and some sort of critique. And as ideas advance and move forward, they become stronger and stronger and other ideas you know, that are weak or the data just isn't there. Eventually they kind of fall away just as phrenology has. And so phrenology has been debunked. I'm sure in Andrew Combs book about diet, dietetics, there's been new information obtained and the book would look very different if it were written today. Oh but, yeah. So the, both these books were destroyed in the 1846 fire. We no longer have them. Mm -hmm. But if we did, what would be their value to a modern reader? I would say, well, certainly not for how to live your life, but I would say just to give an insight <laughs> into, uh, you know, what was the thinking? Why were they thinking this way? And I think also perhaps as a bit of a cautionary tale, because there are plenty of ideas that have been debunked in our own time. I'm old, but I'm not that old. But, you know, when I grew up, the idea of plate tectonics was a crackpot theory. The idea that the continents are on these floating, you know, masses of land and they move around. That's, that was not proven when I was growing up. And lest we forget, we all thought ulcers were caused by stress. We now know that's not the case. And until very recently, a lot of illnesses that might affect children, including some, you know, mental issues, for example, schizophrenia, they were blaming the parents, you know, that that was a sign of bad parenting. I can remember in college reading an item in a scientific American extract that said, clearly it took three generations of bad parenting and you would have produced a child who was schizophrenic. So, 
you know, that's a case of we don't think that anymore because we now have the scientific evidence and the data to say, no, that's not the case. But I think when we look at something like phrenology, we have to remember it's easy to laugh. It's it's easy to kind of mock it. I mean, I, I certainly did when I looked at it, but we have to remember that, you know, there's some probably things going on in our lives today that are going to suffer the same fate. So maybe a little a little humility and a little a little compassion might be needed. has been a production of the Nantucket Athenaeum. It was written, narrated, and edited by me, Janet Forrest. Special thanks to Jim Borzilleri for sharing his research, knowledge, and charming radio voice. Please check the episode notes for resources and references, as well as a link to an image of the phrenology bust. The Nantucket Athenaeum is located at 1 India Street in Nantucket, Massachusetts. We would love for you to stop by. Join me next week to see what else you can find on the shelves of yore.